we exist to come alongside people who are hurting, who are broken, who are messed up, to come alongside them and give them love and to give them grace and to give them encouragement until they can rise above it and walk on that path on their own. We are Pathway Church, located in Burleson, Texas. We worship together, we serve together, and we grow together. You may be seated. I, too, want to welcome everyone here, especially those that are online. I want to speak to our ones that are down there. Uh, we used to call it True Worth, but now it's not just True Worth. And now we have this technology spread throughout the entire Presbyterian Night Shelter. And we're now calling it the bridge. And we're making a bridge to you from here, from Pathway to you and to you to other churches there in the area of downtown Fort Worth, but also maybe to other places where you can get help and encouragement. And I tell you, it's an honor for us to connect with you through this miracle. So I want to welcome all those that are brand new online down there at the Presbyterian Night Shelter. Thank you, thank you, thank you for allowing us to join you in your spiritual journey. And if you're in the house and you came back after Easter, Wow. <laughs> wow. I just want to say thank you for that and those that are joining us online and those who uh, willingly and joyfully worship down in the sanctuary. Uh, last weekend was an incredible experience. Uh, if you were here, you kind of knew me. It was, just, it was just off the chain. It was awesome. And in many ways, it was because of you. And it's, it wasn't because of the numbers. I'm not even going to talk about the numbers. Uh, the numbers of people were so many online and on the campus uh, we don't even have a good handle on that, but it just say it was a lot, a lot of people. But it was because of so many people here served. You serve week to week. I want to say thank you to those who serve. I want to say thank you to those of you who give so generously. You allowed us to do some things out in the crossing and online, but in the crossing for kids and families to have a great fun experience. Some of you who prayed. Uh, there are some of you that have been praying and praying and praying and praying during this entire COVID mess uh, for your church and for your church staff and just for the body of Christ as a whole. And then some of you have been boldly inviting. I mean, I met so many people here again this morning who were invited by someone. You've been boldly inviting. I just want to say thank you. Uh, you are the body of Christ. And you are making a difference. And let's begin here in prayer. God, uh, we, we assemble here again online down there in the, uh, at the night shelter, here on site, we, we, we gather again to celebrate that the tomb is empty. That you did what everyone thought was impossible. And you brought a dead man back to life. And people saw it with their own eyes. It was a witness. And many of us, God, have experienced him in our own lives. And we know the reality of Jesus and his love. And God, there are so many in the world who don't. There are so many who are struggling with questions and wonderment and everything, God. So we come here again, God, for clarity, a deeper understanding of who you are. So we ask, God, as we open your word, that you would teach us and you would touch us. You open eyes and ears and minds to a deeper understanding of who you are and whose we are. In the name of the resurrected Jesus, I pray. Amen. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can find 1 John. We're going to camp out in 1 John. If you have your Bible app, you can go there. Uh, we're going to camp out in 1 John chapter 4 primarily. If you have your message notes, you can get there. Uh, we're beginning a new a, a message series we're calling Six Feet Apart. And we're going to be talking about boundaries, these boundaries we've been setting, this physical distancing, and the reason for setting in relationships while boundaries are so important. 
and what happens when boundaries are violated. And if a boundary's gotten out of control, how maybe to learn to get it back under control where it's healthy. Because some of us don't have healthy boundaries, and it's really destroyed some things in our life and damaged. Now, we're going to talk about that, but we're going to do that kind of next week, kind of slide that next week. This morning, we're going to get a foundation for this entire series, and we're going to talk about love. A deeper understanding of love. And just join right in here in your message notes. We talk about relationships. Number one, the greatest source of joy and pain in life are my relationships. If I was to stop here and go around and ask this question of of any of you or get online, if I could connect with you online, uh, and I I was to ask you, tell me, what is the greatest source of, of joy in your life? Many of you would go, oh, well, the memory or the moment with my mom or my dad, one of my parents, man that, man, that was just so much joy in that experience. Or maybe the closest you have with a brother or sister, that special relationship you have. Maybe it's the mystery of falling in love in that moment of, whoa, just kind of be, being hit by love over hills and just kind of bedazzled uh, by love. Uh, maybe it's the gift of a friend. I mean, you got a friend in your life. You go, man, how could I deserve a friend like that? I mean, they're always good, and they show up, and there's such a joy in that friend that you can't even understand and explain it to someone, the gift of this friend. So much joy. Or maybe it's the wonder and the joy of holding your child or a grandchild in your hand for the very first time. And I'm shamelessly got to tell you again, guess you didn't know, I got a grand new grandson. And this is Ryder Thomas Beckett, and I got to hold him for the very first time for a long time on Friday night, and I tell you, it is so sweet. And I just sat there and went, wow, what joy. I cannot even explain the joy. But if I was to come back to you and ask you again, tell me, what is the source of the greatest pain in your life? Same people. You would say Relationships. A parent, it's cold, it's hard, they're calloused, they're angry with you all the time. You have the memory of abuse growing up, distant, broken relationship with a parent. Maybe you as a parent with your own child, you have a child that rejects your love. You have a child that has nothing to do with you. They turn their back on you. And just the fact of me bringing it up right now, kind of twist the knife in your heart a little bit more and you feel the pain of it even right now just because I bring it up. The sting of a divorce, you're bitter. Still hadn't gotten past it. Betrayal of a spouse or a friend, they just did it to you, just the knife, just pow. Maybe it's a friend who stiff-armed you. Out of nowhere, they just kind of pushed you away. You don't know why. You don't get it. Or maybe you're just someone who is lonely, and you long to have a relationship with someone to spend the rest of your life with, and you find yourself, it seems like, in this internal place of being single, and you feel just this overwhelming sense of loneliness. It's just a fact. Life is all about relationships. For better or for worse, greatest source of joy Greatest source of pain. Now, we're going to be talking about relationships through this entire series, and we're going to be talking about the importance of boundaries and how that causes pain and how you can set boundaries that will bring joy into your life. But we cannot even understand boundaries until we get the concept and the importance of love, a unique kind of love, and know how to give and receive love. 
When Jesus came on the earth, he embodied a profound kind of love that nobody in the world had ever seen or experienced really before. He knew how to give love and knew how to receive love in a way that no human being on this earth had ever done. So I want us to focus and kind of reflect on the nature of this sort of love that Jesus understood that many of us don't understand and can't even practice. And to reflect on what it is for me to receive this love, but even more importantly, to give this love to people all around me. Now, we're going to kind of ground ourselves in this understanding in 1 John. This is a little letter written to a church community by a disciple of Jesus named John. And I want you to imagine that he is writing this letter, these words to you and me, right here, real now, in real time, in the midst of what we're doing in our lives. And look what he says. Dear friends, literally, it's better spoken, dearly beloved. Dearly beloved, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who, does, who, who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, dearly beloved, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, most of us here, we love objects and we love people because they are lovely, because they are lovable, or because we think they are worthy of our love. Example. I love living in North Central Texas. I love living here. I love living in the Metroplex. I love the contrast between the skylines of Dallas and Fort Worth and the difference between these two cities so close by. But I love living south of the Metroplex on I-35 in Burleson and not on the north side of Fort Worth because of that little traffic nightmare vortex. I love living in Burleson, Texas. I just love it. I love the people. I love the school systems. I, I love the local businesses and the community in which they work together. I love the local churches and the sense of camaraderie they have. I, I love that we live here, kind of separate from everything up there. But I love going up there to have access to all the sports and all the universities and everything like that. I love that. But I love it more down here. Anybody here want to testify? And I see a few of you are going to raise your hands who would say, you love Baylor University and the fact they won the NCAA. I knew we had some gig sickums over here, yeah. I don't love Baylor. <laughs> I don't hate Baylor. I just don't love Baylor. Now, I'll tell you who I do love. I didn't know I loved him until this past really couple of weeks, but I really love him. I love Mark Few. Do you know who Mark Few is? He is the coach of Gonzaga. And I didn't know, know that I loved him until this past week because all these people started texting me and emailing me during the tournament saying, Pastor Rick, you have a doppelganger. Mark, you look just like Mark Few. And I'm going, no, I don't. They said, yes, you do. I said, so I love you, Mark Few. I never met you. We probably never will meet. But you got to be an awesome guy. I don't know why. I'm just, I'm just saying. 
We love objects and people because they're beautiful, because they're successful, because they're smart, they're athletic, they're handsome coaches who look like pastors. (laughs) I know that's not true. In your notes, number two, that's human love. And human love seeks value in what is already loved. Let me repeat that. Human love seeks value in something or someone that's already loved that other people think is lovable. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to love things like that. But there's a deeper, deeper sort of love that I want us to get this morning. Now, to do that, I want to share with you a couple of stories to kind of help set up the scripture and the the next message point. And here's the first story. Dallas and I, we have three sons. We love all three of them in different ways, but equally the same and more. I mean, just love them. Our youngest son is James. He is our youngest. And our youngest is all boy, but I got to tell you, our youngest son, he loved his baby blanket. I mean, he really loved his baby blanket. Now, I want to repeat, James is all boy. His first word out of his mouth was ball. He loved to play with balls. He loved all sports. Uh, He still loves all that. He is very smart. He graduated from the University of Texas, a petroleum engineering degree. He got an MBA from Vanderbilt. He's very, very smart. He's very intelligent. He's very successful. But I'm going to tell you, my James loved his little blanket. He loved that little blanket so much it was with him all the time. When he ate dinner, he was holding on the blanket. When he was laying in bed, he was crafting on that blanket. When he was taking a bath, when he got out of the bathtub, he didn't want the towel, he wanted his blanket. He loved that blanket so much, it was bad for the blanket. And you know, you know what I'm talking, he almost loved it too much. He just kind of, so, and as he grew older and High school, and he was a teenager. He's sitting on the TV, sitting there on the couch watching TV. The blanket was in his hand, and subconsciously, he's stroking and pulling on the frayed edges of this blanket. Just unconsciously loving this blanket. And slowly over time, day by day, week by week, month by month, this blanket begins to unravel. It gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Until it's just almost a little piece of rag. Now, I will tell you, James's love for that blanket and our love for James and our family caused us to do some crazy things. And one particular crazy thing, we went for a family for a stay, kind of a spring break staycation. We couldn't afford three little kids to go somewhere. So we just went over to Dallas. We went into a foreign land. We went to Dallas. We had to take our passports to get entry. And we had, sir, we had security and everything. And we stayed at a hotel for a long weekend. And we had a great time, did some fun things. We went swimming and played there in the hotel. And then we came back late on Sunday night. We got an extra stay to stay late. We got back Saturday, Sunday night. And when we're taking bath, we realized we left the blanket back in Dallas in the hotel. There was no conversation. There was no discussion. There was no options. I sped back in the car and drove as fast as I could back into enemy territory. I snuck in behind the lines as fast as I could. I walked into that hotel. I told the manager the problem. They said, oh, my goodness. They ran up to the room, opened the door, and there was his blanket and all the bedding about to be ushered out to be eternally washed and killed. I rescued it from the clutches of death. By the back of the car, drove as fast as I could, put it in James's hands and... 
He slept peacefully all night, and so did we. Now, I tell you, our family wasn't the brightest family. That blanket was worth about 50 cents on the open market. We could have replaced it easy for the gas it caused me to drive back and forth. But that blanket was priceless in the eyes of James. To him, it was beautiful. He loved it. Now, James got older. He outgrew the blanket. He traded up for his wife, Corinne, which is more beautiful and more cuddly than the blanket. And now they've been happily married for four years. They live in Tennessee, moving back here, I pray, this summer when James gets the job. I'm just kind of excited to start having more grandbabies. <laughs> Joy for me, pain for them. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> and uh, so my wife now has a decision to make. What do I do with this little blanket that James loves so much? She takes it and folds it up like the shroud of Jesus that in that little tomb very neatly and places it in the middle of his bed as a monument that he sees every time he comes home. Now, everybody here, every family watching online, sanctuary down there at the night shelter, you know what I'm talking about. There's something in your family. There's an old pillow. There's a ball glove. There's a book. There's a doll. Worthless to anybody else. My sister had a doll, a rag doll. One of my three sisters, a rag doll. Uh, that doll, she loved that doll so much, my mother had to sew that thing back together. She had to perform Botox and liposuction on that doll just to keep it alive over the course of time. When my sister grew up, she very she folded it up and kind of hid it and put it up there in the attic. And I know today that doll still lives somewhere in the family tree. My mother loved not that doll. She loved my, my sister who loved that doll. And I had lots of stuff like that when I was growing up as a boy. My mother did not keep any of that stuff. She threw it all away because she loved my sisters more than she loved me. <laughs> hey, mother, mother, I know that's not true. I'm just trying to make my sisters feel good, mom. I'm just, okay, I'm just, because you and I know the truth, mom. You and I know the truth. So sisters, relationships, remember. Here's the deal. That tattered blanket, small and frayed like a rag, was treated like the shroud of Jesus. And that doll got liposuction and Botox to keep it living for a long time. Not because they had a high value, but because in the eyes of James, in the eyes of my sister, they were beautiful and they were loved. There is a deeper love, there is a greater love in your note that creates value in what is love. There is a love that seeks value in what is beautiful, what is smart, and what is intelligent, and what is successful, and what has status, and influence, and connected, and power. There's a people who love that, but there's a deeper kind of love. 
that doesn't seek value in what other people love, but it creates value in what they see as beautiful. That's a deeper sort of love. Now, church, that is hard for you and me to understand, except for the fact that you and I are nothing but tattered blankets and rag dolls that a lot of people just want to discard and throw away because we're really not that valuable to them. Happens all the time. Anybody ever seen the movie Beauty and the Beast? The little play Beauty and the Beast. It's a movie, great family movie, a love story that a grown man can cry. And there's this G.K. Chesterton who says this about this movie. I just think it's so true, this play. There's a great lesson in Beauty and the Beast that a thing must be loved before it is lovable. And that is our problem. We all know for me to feel lovable, I need someone to love me just the way I am, tattered edges and Botox ragdoll, just the way I am. And John writes this little letter, and he understands this kind of love. He knows this love better than anybody else here in this room. You see, he was a disciple of Jesus. He was very close to Jesus. He had a nickname. He's the only one of the disciples that had this nickname. You know what, you know what his nickname was? The one Jesus, what? Loved. You know, so what? Jesus loved all the disciples, didn't he? Yep. He was the master of love. Yep, right, yep. He, but here's what you need to know. John was the youngest of all the disciples. He was the baby of the disciples. He lived the longest. He was the oldest when he died. But you need to know this in the ancient world. If you were young, if you were really, really young, you had no status. You had no influence. You had no value. Back in the day, the people who were aged, who were considered wise, they had the value. They had the status. They had the worth. But John understood. He said, you know, I know of all the disciples, I'm way low on the totem pole. I have no status, no influence. I'm not worth much. But that's not my identity. My identity is I am the one Jesus loves. That is my identity. Pretty interesting idea. And so in the Bible, there's this word called agape. If you've been in the church, you know what that, you heard this word. We think, oh, that word means love. And that is the Greek word here that's used for love. But this word agape existed way before Jesus was ever on the earth. And it was a little obscure Greek word that people didn't use very much. And it meant to prefer this instead of this. That's all it meant. That's all it meant. Prefer this over this. That's what agape meant. In the New Testament church, they poured the love of God, a different sort of love, not a love that seeks value and that which other people love, but creates value in that which is unloved by others and poured it in, and that becomes the word. And so that is the revolution that Jesus brought, a revolution of love, 
a different kind of love that gives birth to the church. He takes these tattered disciples, these broken little blankets, and he makes them these main hub. And the church is a bunch of people who are nothing but tattered blankets and stuffed rag dolls that are worthless. That is what this movement is all about. And then John wants us to understand this, so he begins, verse 7, by saying, Dearly beloved. Interesting little word, beloved. It's kind of a pious word. That's why the NIV kind of said, no, let's call it friends. It's kind of a churchy word. Maybe you've been to a wedding where a pastor says, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here, and it gets all holy, and kind of make it kind of all kind of special. But you need to understand something about that word, dearly beloved. Dearly beloved. That word beloved is the answer to a question that everybody in the world asks at some point. And this is number four in your notes, a haunting question. What is a human being worth? What is a human being worth? Seriously, what is a human being worth? Sometimes we answer that with cliches. We answer that with sarcasm. But it's a real question that needs a real answer. What is a human being worth? Now, when you and I want to know how much a car is worth, you know the make, the model, the condition. You look up in a Kelly Blue Book, it'll give you a worth, a value for the car. You want to know what your house is worth, you know the square footage, the condition, the location. You do some comps, you can get the value of what it's worth. Alan, the executive pastor on staff, he passes on to me his Wall Street journals. I looked through them, and I saw there in California, there was a house for sale, a thousand square foot house. 1,000-square-foot house listed as a teardown for $2.55 million. You can find a house in Wichita Falls, Texas, a 1,000-square-foot house for $100,000. Now, you have to live in Wichita Falls. <laughs> I love Wichita Falls. I, I spent a lot of my time there. If you want to know how much your house is worth, you can go to a website called Zillow. Plug in your address. It will give you the approximate value of your house. I did that. I put an address in there, and it gave me back the value of a house. And the house is so expensive, nobody here who can hear my voice right now, on time or rewinding later on in the week, can afford it. Nobody. We could put all of our money together. We can't afford it. It's priceless. Not because of supply and demand. Not because of square footage. Not because of location. But because of who lived in it. And because of who lived in it, they honor the house based on the person who lived in it. Mount Vernon, George Washington. It's priceless. That's what you call bestowed worth. If you didn't earn it, it's a gift. Now, that brings me back to the question, what is a human being worth? And you say, well, it depends on the human being. It depends on the person, right? In the ancient world, that's how they thought. It depended on the person. In fact, Nick Wusterhoff has a, a theologian from Yale, a philosophy thinker, puts this on the screen. He says this right here. It is essentially impossible to find a secular foundation outside of God on which you can base the dignity and the priceless value of a human being. 
if I look for a secular foundation on how much is a human being worth, I'm going to say it's their capacity to reason and to be rational. But what if somebody has a diminished capacity to reason? That means they have diminished worth. And nobody wants to say that a person is not equally in value as a human. People who are secular, people who don't believe in God, believe that everybody has worth. And yet, it is hard. You cannot find a reason to justify that a person has value other than that there is a God, they are made in the image of God, and God loves them, period. That's it. And God says, love me and love my rag dolls, love my tattered blankets just the way I love them, and your value, your worth is not based on how smart you are or how beautiful you are. It's not. No one is. Let me repeat that. No one is. So right before COVID, I'm over in Dallas attending a Maverick game, which may be the last one I will ever attend. And I'm attending this Maverick game, and everybody's beautiful. Everybody. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Beautiful clothes, beautiful hair. It was pet day. They had beautiful dogs. All their dogs were beautiful. I mean, everything was beautiful. Same week, I was at a, in Fort Worth uh, teaching at a little Christian businessmen's lunch and I do a little leadership stuff there. And they were all smart. They all went to a great school. Uh, their kids went to a great school. Their spouses went to a great school. Their dog went to great schools. And I'm thinking, I will never be as beautiful as these people, and I will never be as smart as these people. Who am I? What am I worth? Your worth as a human being has nothing to do with how young you are or how old you are, how smart you are, how dumb you are, whether you're educated or you're not educated, the house you have, the car you drive, your financial well-being, whether you have a home down there at night shelter or you don't have a home. Your worth is not dependent upon that. Your worth is dependent, is that you are made in the image of God and God loves you. That is your value and that is your worth, period. And you think that's great. I like that, but there's more. There's more. You can invite Jesus into your life. And he will come and take up residence in you. He will live in you. I did that. I invited Jesus to come live in my life. He answered my prayer. You know what that means? That means you got to be careful how you treat me. I got some rough edges. I got some tattered, frayed parts where people have been pulling on me. And I know I, sometimes I'm kind of old and just kind of want to throw me aside like a little piece of rag as I'm done with. But there's somebody living in me that is greater than George Washington. That makes me priceless in the eyes of God. And if you've accepted him as your Savior, Lord, that makes you priceless in the eyes of God. And everybody who can see you, you are invaluable. But there's more. It's deeper. See, you and I have a problem nobody wants to really talk about. It. We ignore it all the time. We live in a therapeutic age, a consumer age. Just feel good. We want everybody to feel good about themselves. But the Bible doesn't do that. Here's the good news. The good news is that God loves you more than you can imagine. 
Here's the bad news. There is a sin. There is a darkness. There is an ego. There is a pride. There is a selfishness. There's a desire to control everybody around you so deep within you. And we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. We are experts at forgetting that part of our being. I know I can speak firsthand. I'm on campus at TCU a couple of weeks, years ago for an award ceremony. One of my former professors who's retired and was up in years and the filters in his mind gone a little bit, he had came in and addressed me and said, hey, Rick, it's so, it's so good to see you. He said, are you still pastoring that church? I said, yeah, I, I still am. He said, man, I sure am glad you're doing pastoring. You never went into counseling. And, and he was one of my professors who was getting me considered to go maybe into doctoral work and, and professional ministerial psychology and counseling and stuff. He said, do you remember the evaluations you took to do that? I said, no, I don't remember those evaluations at all. Were they great? He said, great. He said, they were terrible. You were awful. If we would have sent people to you for counseling, they would have got worse. <laughs> you, you made the right choice just to stay in ministry. Hey, they don't let you counsel your church, do you? He said, no, no, nothing like that. I just, I just preach the gospel, the import, unimportant stuff. He said, good, he said. I said, okay. <laughs> Here's the deal. I had forgotten how bad that evaluation was. If it had been good, I would have remembered. Because we have a nature to forget. We want to forget. And here's the deal. One day, I, you, we're going to stand before a holy, righteous, sinless, perfect, all-knowing God. And he's going to know every thought, every word, every action that's come out of my life. He's going to know every person that I have hurt, that I have abused, that I have spoken ill of, that I have shamed, that I have blamed, that I have envied, that I have said harsh words against, that I have trashed. Because he cares about them because they're his rag dolls and they're his toward tattered blankets. How do you stand before a God like that? Verse 10, this is love. Not that we love God. Oh, we love God. Of course we love God. God is good. God gives me gifts. God takes care of me. God gives me life. God gives me all these things. Of course, I love the ice cream man. My kids love the ice cream. They didn't know the ice cream man. They just love the ice cream man because he gave them ice cream, right? Oh, you love God because you want him to give you all this stuff. Of course you love God. Why not? He's good. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Tattered towels and, and blankets and, and ugly throwaway rag dolls. And he sent his son Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know what, what love, love is? You look at the cross. This love, this cross is the picture of love. You want to know how to love? Look to the cross. There's no other explanation You want to really love people? Church, this is an idea that changed the world. You need to understand this. This, this idea of Jesus and love, it, it totally changed everything. Even people who don't believe in God, who have no faith, believe that all human beings are created equal, right? 
Hey, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, that all women are created what? Equal in worth and in value as a human being. That is not Plato. That is not Socrates. That is not Muhammad. That is not Buddha. That is not any political party or social justice movement. That is only through the teaching of Jesus Christ himself who sacrificed his life on the cross for all people to know they have value and worth, period. And we, we, the church, are his rag dolls and tattered uh, blankets. And he says to you and me in verse 11, He's said, dear friends, dear rag dolls, since God loved us, let's love each other. Not in the way this love was beautiful and nice and kind and sweet, but to really love people. So you come here on Sundays, you come here and you say, oh, yeah, I'm pro-love. Oh, yes, pastor, I'm all down. I'm, I'm all pro-love. And then you go out in the world and you meet with real people in real life. And let me ask you, how do you treat them? Can I tell you, I fail at this every time. Last week on Easter Saturday, Easter Saturday, but mind you, I'm getting ready to, get to try to get to come to church, running out of the grocery store with my wife and Linus for the last time, you know, getting those last little groceries for Easter. I get to the car first. I open up a message, open my Bible app, and I'm kind of getting kind of last minute sort of preparation. And Dallas and Linus are taking forever to get in the car. Why does it take some people forever to get in the car? I don't know. I mean, you just get in the car and you go. But all of a sudden I snapped and I said, could y'all please just get in the car and start dawdling? I got stuff I got to do. And then I just started praying. I said, God, please help me love every person who comes into my path. Just help me, God, to be loving. And I just blew it right then. Anybody like me? Sometimes I'm a spiritual idiot. I suffer from spiritual idiot syndrome. And I just snap and I treat them like a blanket or a rag doll. And church, I'm here to tell you, there's people in your life that don't deserve it. But you didn't either. And God says, love them. Stop the blaming. Stop the shaming. Stop the name calling. Stop the, the blowing your temper. Stop just, just, just love them. A deeper, deeper sort of love that creates value in them. We're about done. Stay with me. Just stay with me about another five minutes. I'll get you, I promise. Life is all about love. A great life is not about how much money, how successful you are. It's not how beautiful you are. It's how well do you love. A great church It's not the buildings. It's not about the programs or the ministries. It's how well do you love, period. And here's the final point in your message notes, number five. This is really what love is. This is what I would say to be your definition of love, is to will the good as God intends in someone else's life. Let me repeat that. To will the good as God intends someone's good in their life. Verse 18, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Don't come to church on Sunday morning and say, I love you, I love you, I love you, God. I'm pro-love. And then walk out these doors and act like a jackass to every person you come across. Because you think it's your right to treat them. Because I'll say that in love. Real love in real life with real people in real time. Can we please just try? I know it's going to be really hard. 
There are people that irritate the dog out of you. There are people that get under your nerves. There are people who push your button, and they just they enjoy pushing your button. They just go boop, 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 and you just go, oh, oh, and they just, this is so much fun. They just love seeing you bop, blow it and squirrel and kind of pop off and do this and that and that. They just love doing it, and you just keep doing it. There are people who sit on that one nerve. I was visiting with a couple in marriage counseling. Babe, you, I got one nerve left, and you're sitting on it. What do you do if you got one nerve left and they're sitting on it? Here's what you do. You come back next week, and we're going to talk about boundaries and how to do that, deal with that, okay? That's what we're going to do next week. We're going to talk about how you do that productively. That, that's, that's, that's what we're going to do. And here's I'm going to tell you this story, and I'm going to let you out of here. And here's what I want you to hear while I tell you this story. God is in the business of taking unlivable people and helping them become lovable and loving. And here's our last story. I'm changing the names to protect the innocent and the guilty. Al was a crotchety old man. He was a grandfather, a father, a husband. He was a good man. His tattered edge was he drank alcohol. He wasn't belligerent to others, but he would kind of retreat and drink his alcohol. That's his retreat. And he would hide in his alcohol. He was a good man, good provider. He wasn't very expressive with his emotions. His family would say, I love you. He would say, love you back. Never say I love you, ever. He was great at fishing, great at fixing things, great at hunting, great at it. Not so great at relationships. He turns yellow, his skin, pancreatic cancer, his terminal. He's not going to live very long. His family didn't know how to talk to him about it because they all are people of faith and Al was not a person really of faith. He didn't care about them going to church and believing in God, but it wasn't for him. But the other grandparent on the other side of the family tree said, Al, what am I going to do if one of our grandkids, because we share grandkids, they come to me and they say, listen, did Papa know God? What, what should I tell them? You tell them that I'm good with God. You just tell them that. And then she says, are you really? Do you know that God loves you so much? That he sent his son Jesus to die upon the cross for your sins. There's nothing you've done. Nothing, nothing, nothing. That can make him stop loving you. And I would tell you, Al, if you would just receive Jesus into your life as your Savior, it will change not just your eternity, but the quality of your life for the time that you have left with your kids. He said, I'll think about it. Well, he thought about it. And he accepted Jesus. And it changed his life. The little that he had left on this earth. He started reading this book, and I did a little Bible study with him. He would fill in the answers, and I would come back and every two weeks and visit with him in hospice. And, and then one day he said, hey, Pastor, uh, uh, would you pray with me? I said, sure. He said, uh, can we do the hand thing? He would never say, let's hold hands. He just said, no man says let's hold hands. Can we do the hand thing? So we did the hand thing. We prayed. <laughs> and not too long after that, his daughter comes to see him, and the last word the daughter says to her dad is, I love you too. And that means he said, I love you, Nancy. He has a stroke the very next day. It impedes his speech. Days later, he dies, which means the very last words a daughter heard from her dad's mouth was the first time he ever said, I love you. 
There are some of you here that are wounded. Words said, words not said. It's time to get the relationships right. It's time to make it right. While you can. And that's what we're going to do in this series, okay? To help you get some things right. So if you want, I'm going to pray in online. Down there at the night shelter in the house. If you want, if you want to do the hand thing, you can. If there's somebody next to you, you want to do the hand thing, maybe you need to. If you're not sitting by someone or you don't want to do the hand thing, uh, just know that God is holding your hand right now. And that God says you're valuable. That you're a person of worth. You're made in my image. You're my rag doll. You're my tattered blanket. And I love you. God, we thank you for your love. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. It's just bestowed worth, bestowed love. Forgive us, God, for how we have shamed other rag dolls and other tattered blankets, how we have judged them, how we have condemned them, how we have dogpiled them out there in the world. Love like the world does, God. Forgive us, God, for being like the world and not like Jesus. Help us. Help us, help us to love and live like him. Heal us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us. If you would like more information on Pathway or to get connected to a ministry, visit our website at pathway.church. We look forward to growing with you as we worship together. God loves you. God is with you.